and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is you're transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now... Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I'm Brian Levinson. So excited to have you with us today. When I'm not recording on this podcast, I'm working as a mental performance coach, which gives me the opportunity to work with elite performers in both business and sports. So I help them develop their mindset to be the best that they can be, especially in performance. So we focus on how they can maximize their potential, how they can win moments, and ultimately how they can enjoy success. So I love what I do for a living. And I started this podcast with a simple mission in mind. How are people like the clients that I work with intentionally setting their mind to be their best when it matters most? We aim to unpack just that and bring intentional gems to you, the listener. Now, before we get started, I want to tell you about how you can support the podcast. If you've listened to our shows in the past, hopefully you've appreciated them. If you're new to the show, hopefully you'll appreciate today's show, and I know you will. So if you could go over to patreon.com backslash intentional performers, that's where you can subscribe to our show and just give $10 a month to help support us. We are constantly trying to evolve constantly trying to create and innovate on the show. And that $10 a month really does go very far. So please go over to patreon.com backslash intentional performers. And we also have an exciting uh, opportunity for those people that do. So we're getting close to our date. We're going to have a podcast retreat. We've got a lot of our podcast guests that are going to come out to a mountain house that's right outside Washington, DC. And that retreat is being open to some VIP supporters of patreon.com. So uh, if you go over to patreon.com backslash intentional performers and you support the show, then you're going to be entered into a drawing to potentially come to that retreat. I know we're getting close to the date, but you will be entered into a drawing and uh, potentially get to meet a lot of our podcast guests. So once again, go over to patreon.com backslash intentional performers and support our show. Thank you to everybody that already has done that as well. Now, today's guest is Brian Grant. So Brian Grant played in the NBA for 12 years. And if you grew up like I did, uh, you noticed his dreadlocks, you noticed his tenacity, his fearless attitude on the court. He absolutely left everything on the court. And honestly, he just outworked a lot of people that had more talent than him. But he was a beast and he started his career at Xavier University, uh, where he was the player of the year twice uh, in his conference. He was then drafted in the first round, which we're going to get into, eighth overall, which was certainly a shock to him. 
him in the 1994 draft by the Sacramento Kings. And then he found himself playing for the Portland Trailblazers, the Miami Heat, the Los Angeles Lakers, and the Phoenix Suns. Uh, Brian was always very involved in the community, which he'll touch on as well. Um, and after he retired, uh, he found out that he had early onset Parkinson's disease at the young age of 36. Uh, so obviously that was a challenge that he had to deal with and something that he probably was not expecting as he'll share with you today. Um, so Brian has since thrown himself into being an advocate for Parkinson's. He started the Brian Grant Foundation, uh, which their mission is to help people with Parkinson's lead active and fulfilling lives. Uh, Brian's also an amazing speaker. You'll find out today that he has an amazing word way with words. He's an incredible storyteller. He has a great sense of humor and he has a humility about him that is just really infectious. Uh, he, he just has a gratitude about him and a spirituality to him that is, is really incredible. And so I love this conversation as Brian shares what his mindset was like growing up in a town uh, where the odds were certainly stacked against him, how he overcame some adversity there, how he fought sort of people expecting him to not succeed all throughout his career and how he's battling Parkinson's as well. So this is a rich conversation. As I said, Brian's an amazing storyteller. And a lot of this conversation is me just shutting up and letting Brian tell stories. So I know you're going to love this conversation with Brian. So without further ado, I present to you, Brian Grant. So Brian, thanks for connecting with me and excited to chat with you. Um, What I'd love to do is first start off a little bit with your childhood. So I know basketball for you came in a little bit late. So paint the picture of what it was like for you growing up and also how basketball came into your life. Well, first of all, I grew up in a town that had only 1,800 people, a small rural town outside of Cincinnati, about an hour and 15 minutes east. Um, Sports were very heavy because I grew up in a town with 11 cousins that were either the same age, a year older, a year younger. So sports was kind of everything to most of us except for me. Um, I was always a little taller than everyone, but I was very uncoordinated and lanky. I was a really funny built kid. I was not a good looking kid at all. Um, but you know, football is what I was the first sport that I can remember loving. I just loved to hit and be able to get hit. Uh, it wasn't until I got to my eighth grade year that we didn't have football. So I had to start playing basketball, which everybody thought great, easy transition it was the worst. I would, you know, I hardly ever got chosen to play. My freshman year in high school, I made the team, and I think out of 12 games, played like four or five. Um, but the real miracle happened for me in my life at the end of that freshman year. I was five ten and a half. When I came back the next year for my sophomore year, I was six four. Mm. I mean, incredible. Over a summer, you could literally watch me grow. And uh, didn't play my sophomore year because of Osgood sliders, which is um, when you outgrow your tendons. So you start tearing away from the bone. Uh, sophomore year, didn't play. Junior year, went out for the team, uh, got into it with the coach over some racial stuff. And uh, that was kind of it for me. It was not going to be any kind of sports or anything like that. I was going out, doing the wrong thing, staying out all night, drinking, partying during school nights. And it was um, one day we were driving Main Street, my mother and I, and this commercial for college came on. And I looked at it and I go, I'm going to go to college. She slams on her brakes. Boom. I hit the windshield. And she goes, are you all right? You're all right. I said, Mom, what did you do that for? And she goes, what did you say? And I said, why did you do it? She goes, no, before that, I said, oh, then I'm going to college. 
she gave me one of those serious looks where you just know it's coming straight from the heart. You're not going to go to college. You're not going to be shit. You're going to be a lazy bum just like everybody else around here. And I kind of looked at her like, I'll show you. I'm not going to be a bum. I bet you I graduate from high school. So I started to dedicate myself to trying to become a better person, not partying or anything like that. But uh, was that was that for you like an immediate reaction? Like I'll show you, or was it, it was a, later? It, like like as you think about it, you can remember exactly where you are. Had, your I, face exactly, hits the, yeah. I'm in a I'm in a car with my face in the windshield and listening to my mother tell me I'm not going to be shit. So we used to go to this neighboring town to play basketball called Ripley, Ohio. And people would come down from Maysville, Kentucky, bigger towns and stuff. So it was always competitive games. First day I went out there, the guys that I grew up with that were like four or five years older than me, I mean, they literally beat me up on the court. When it was over, I had two busted lips, a bloody nose. I had a big knot on my eye. And I just looked at them and said, I'm going to tell my uncle. And it was like, you're not doing anything. Get in the car. So I jumped in the car with four of them. They came into the pony keg and pick up four 40 ounces of beer. And so we go down to the river, they give me one, I'm about halfway through my 40 and they just go in on me. What's your problem? Why are you hanging out with my brother? My brother's a bum. I love him, but he's a bum. You might be the first kid around here ever to be able to do something, maybe even get a scholarship, but you're going to waste it on them. So every Sunday you come out, we're going to do that to you every Sunday. You're going to leave with stitches, busted lips, something. If you don't like it, then don't show up. Mm-hmm. So that happened the next two Sundays that happened. And finally, that third Sunday when I went out there, I said, screw this. Am I allowed to cuss? Oh, yeah. You can say whatever you want. Uh, screw <laughs> this shit. And I just, I remember it was one particular play. The ball came off. I was kind of surrounded by them. They all, at the same time, swung. I came through them and just, boom, said, what? You, you know? And from there, everybody outside the gate was like, oh, shit. You know, he's kind of trying to find his courage here. And so... From that day, it seemed like I got asked to play in all these little local tournaments and things. And everything that I played on, we won. We won. And so now you, we're hitting. I'm curious because, uh, you know, I've done some homework on you. And I know you talked about anger uh, being something that you leveraged when, when you got to the NBA. And, and we'll, come, we'll come back to it. But can you talk about, like, it sounds like in that moment, that was very reactive for you. Like, I'm done with this. I'm just going to play my ass off. Uh, how did anger impact you on the court? Um, when I could control it, it would impact me in a very positive way. But sometimes, you know, anger spills over. And once it gets away from you, it's very hard to catch up with it. So a lot of times it, you know, got me in fights with other guys from other areas, uh, you know, that I'd be playing with. But ultimately, I used it to just shake off anything. I mean, I was still getting hit and elbowed, but it was like I was going right through it. And the anger just was like, sort of like the Incredible Hulk. It was like, once I'm there, I'm there. There's nothing you could do about it. So, yeah, I, I definitely leveraged anger. And um was going into my senior year. Coach called my cousin and I in and said, listen, everybody in this town tells me, do not take a chance on you. That you're, a, that you know, you'll disappoint us. You'll, you'll get arrested or even go to jail or might even get killed. And so I just told him, that's not what I'm about. I'm here trying to play my senior year. And he goes, okay, so we start, we'll start off with a fresh, you know, fresh record, as we could say. Unfortunately, two weeks into the, my senior year, I get in a fight because a guy, I'm walking out the hall, he knocks my books out of my arm. And I go to grab him, and I'm not going to say nothing, but then my cousin looks at me and goes, you going to let him 
knocked the books out of your hand. So I went up to him and said, excuse you. And he was like, what? I said, excuse you. And he goes, I don't have to say excuse you to a nigger. Mm. I looked at I gave him this. And then it was, uh, excuse you, to his forehead. I started walking away. My cousin said, well, look out. I turned. He's charging me. I sidestepped. Boom, 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 boom. Quick. He's down, bleeding. We run for the car. And uh, the shop teacher caught me at the car and just like, what happened? What happened? And my answer was so stupid that I would have drugged me into the office, too. I said, I'm, I'll teach him to stand in my way. You know, in his mind's eye, I'm just being this guy that whooped some kid because he was in his way, in my way. So we go back to the office. The principal wants to expel me. Um, my mom comes up. She threatens to go to the NAACP if they don't at least give me a fair shake on what's my punishment's going to be. So they reduced it to five days suspended. Uh, and I don't know if you know about being suspended or missing days of school. I'm sure you do. You get zeros those days. And so you got to make up for all those zeros. And so I'm cramming. I'm trying to get it together, man. But it comes down to one class, American history by Stanley Mart, Mr. Mart. Uh, I actually spoke to him three days ago, too. Um, I had to pass this course. I could only miss one answer on the test. So I take the test. I know I didn't ace it. Next day, he dismisses class. He tells me to sit my black ass down. So I sit down and he calls me up to his desk and he says, what is this? And I go, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to make any excuses. He goes, good, because I'm not here to hear him. And I said, I know. And he goes, son, you can't fight the world every time somebody calls you a name or something. And I'm not condoning what happened, but you got to be the bigger person. And I was like, I know. And I'm starting to tear up. And then he goes down and he goes, in 1789, what happened? It was multiple choice. I went, I had D and I go C and he goes, well, why didn't you put that? I got to go back and the ones that I knew correctly, I got to correct them and miss one on the test. After it was over, he said, son, people are given second chances in life. You just got yours. Mm. Now, granted, if I don't pass that class, I don't play ball. I'm not here talking to you right now. I might be a statistic in prison or in jail or something, but I'm definitely not playing ball. But that was the real turning point in my life because of his generosity and what he did for me. He didn't have to do it. It wasn't like he gave me the answers or anything like that. But the fact that he gave me that opportunity, I think that shaped who I would later become in the, in the, in the NBA and also as someone who's fighting against Parkinson's. It sounded like there were – two moments, one with the coach, the first coach your junior year where you said yeah. there was some racial stuff there and that caused you to get kicked off the team. And then you have this other moment where you, f you fight a kid um, because he uses racial slur at you. In the future, after this moment, did you have people that still said things that earlier Brian would have reacted to? Oh, absolutely. I mean, things, not so much, you know, college, things like that, but that, you're always being tested, especially, you know, people like to think of Cincinnati as the North and, you know, it's, it's in the North, but it's got Southern roots. And I, I have nothing bad to say about my hometown or the people in it. It was just things that we went through. What, what would allow you to not act, act out in those situations? Well, for one, I knew I had too much to lose. After I, got, I received a scholarship to Xavier University, there was a there was a girl named Kelly Benintendi. She had received a full ride to Michigan. That's how good she was. So I was the first male 
African American, white, Native American, out of any race or color to get a full ride. Is that was the year that Xavier beat the Hoyas when they had Alonzo and Dikembe, and it was against Tyrone Hill and Derek Strong. So, so you just at that point going forward, even though in in Cincinnati you'd face racial stuff, you had too much to lose, or how did you make sense of not well, acting out? I tell you this much: when you're doing good things, uh, like I said, this was my first year playing varsity basketball. I, I skipped my junior uh, year because I was in trouble. But once you started winning and our town became like the town in uh, Hoosiers, every game we went to, we had 30 cars deep. There was a sense of pride, not only in our town, but in the whole county, Brown County, of, you know, there's a kid down there dunking the ball and we haven't seen this ever. And so the whole overnight mindset of things changed. It didn't change for me or my cousin because we grew up with it and it was just like what we expected. But I can remember the second, our second game, it was, a, I think it was our first home game and it was packed, standing room only outside. My mom hadn't shown up yet, but I mean, it, that gym, I think, oh, 1,200 people and it was packed, you know, all the way out the doors. And I remember watching her coming to the gym as we're going through layup lines. And I'm thinking, man, where are they going to put my mom, my sister, and my brother? Um, they walked in, looked, they started to turn around, and all of a sudden, all these people, Gigi, no, wait a minute, give me Gigi over here. And I swear that, you know, the the, the uh, sheriff that was there escorted her, my sister, and my brother in. And it was just like the seat parted. And it was, they just, everyone shaking her hands, made sure she was in a seat, and then they crammed in there. I looked at my cousin and I said, wow, this, this is what, what's going on. That was more of a shocker to me than going to college uh, or having the opportunity to play to get a scholarship. You know, just seeing people that I didn't think liked us, all of a sudden now we're acceptable. I mean, it was a good side and a bad side to that. But that night I, I took the good and looking at my mother's face, just the attention that she was getting because – all right, we're getting ready to start this basketball season and your son is getting it done. So did you realize in that moment that basketball could do things that might be beyond the court and that you could leverage it? Or like, how did you, how did you make sense of that whole scene? I'm, I'm, I'm like envisioning the kid who called you the N-word being in that arena and, and the tables flipped. But um, I don't know if you realized that then or looking back or, or how you made sense of that. At that moment, when I was being, you know, suspended for five days, it was just the same. The same story. Uh, great, I knew, I knew something was going to keep me from uh, being able to play. But um, it, it was. I mean, by the way, this kid's dad was the county commissioner. He wanted nothing to do with it. You know, he apologized. Actually, apologized to me, and you know, said it was his fault. But they still, you know, suspended me for five days. And so, yeah, when I. When that happened, it was kind of like an eye-opening thing where I wasn't thinking like big things. I'm thinking little things like, no, maybe I can get a better date with a better looking date. You know, that kind of thing. Um, I can walk around and, and hold my head high and, and everybody, I don't care if you know me or not, summer, good game, good game. Uh, we all had our little yellow Georgetown jackets. If you had a jacket on, you were, you were the shit that year. <laughs> you were the shit. And, you know, the whole team had them. And it just, 
I, I can't explain it to you, man, because there's so much more to me and my story than just making it to the NBA. There were things that if they didn't happen, I wouldn't have had a chance. It's interesting you bring up Georgetown because I'm based outside Washington, D.C., and I grew up, you know, in my area. It's like Georgetown or University of Maryland. Um, but definitely Georgetown, historically, for African-Americans, has such significance because of John Thompson. Um, so you, you go off to Xavier, and you were talking about at Xavier you know, upsetting Georgetown. Did you grow up as a Georgetown fan? And and then what was it? No, like? I, I didn't grow up. I, I, I didn't even have a college team. I only knew about Georgetown Hoyas because my cousin Lamar was a Hoyas fan. My cousin Jermaine was a Syracuse fan. You know, my cousin Junior was a, a North Carolina fan. I couldn't tell you anything about any of them. I, I could tell you about, uh, you know, Julius Irving because, you know, he was the doctor. You know, he had Pepsi commercials and things like that, but I, I just wasn't into sports. Like I wasn't, I definitely wasn't into watching sports. I loved playing football and later, you know, loved playing basketball, but I just wasn't into following sports. And so Xavier, Xavier's the only one to offer you an opportunity to, to play college ball. So what's it like going to Xavier, which also um, in Cincinnati, but there's this Xavier versus Cincinnati rivalry. There is, you know, Xavier, as a different type of student that goes to Xavier than I think goes to Cincinnati. What's it like for you going to Xavier and, and experiencing that? Well, it was awesome. It almost was the shortest experience that I ever had because when we, once I signed, all the freshmen were required to come in and go through summer courses to get acclimated to the, you know, campus and the credits that we earned that summer were applied your senior year to your senior year. And so, the day we went in for our entrance exams, I'm sitting there with the four other, there were five new recruits and I was one of the five and I'm watching them go through it like, yeah, yeah, doing the math part and all that. I opened it up and I basically closed the book, went and turned in my paper and left. And I tell you that because I got into college with a C minus in pre-algebra, C minus in pre-algebra. That can't happen anymore. As a matter of fact, after my freshman year, that's when they raised the curriculum level that you had to have a, a, a minimum of algebra two, And I hadn't even had algebra. So um, I was almost out of there, but I you know, went and my guidance counselor, Sister Roseanne Fleming, sat me down and said, Brian, do you not want to be at school? I go, Sister, I don't, I don't know it. And she was like, I looked at your engine. I looked at your grades, pre-algebra, and I see mine as well. Um, do you want to be here? And I said, yeah. And she said, well, I would do everything in my power to make sure that you pass if you'll do the work. So I was, I had no extra time my freshman year. It was all tutors, school, tutors, basketball school, tutors, school. And I barely passed. I barely passed. And then after that, I kind of caught up. And by the time I was a senior, I was on the dean's list. What was driving you freshman year to do all of that work? A lot of kids go to college or freshman year and get, get lost. And, um, you know, it's the first time sort of with, freedom or autonomy what was it that was driving you to make sure that you would put in the work uh i knew what was waiting for me if i wasn't doing that mm. you know a georgetown was waiting for me cut cutting tobacco and bailing hay in the summer late summer early fall you know just hard work or a job at mac tools where my mom had worked for 25 years 
And this was, I had nothing to lose. It wasn't like there was like this big thing that I was going to lose if I didn't make, I had nothing to lose. I was going to the fields or to the factory. Hmm. And so I just focused in on, I don't want to go back. As a matter of fact, when we, we and you know, we had to go home for two weeks before the regular school year started. I didn't want to leave. I tried to get them to let me stay in my dorm room, but you know, they couldn't. So I went back home for two weeks and just as soon as I could move in, I was right there. I was going to make the most of it. Mm. So it, it, what you did have to lose was going back home to Georgetown yeah. where you were going to do the things that you knew you had to do just to yeah. live there and you wanted something that, bigger. That, that's a better answer. I, I guess I did have something to lose. I had everything to lose if it didn't work. That's yeah. what I just said. I had everything to lose. Yeah, it's, it's really fascinating. And then at Xavier, you come in as a freshman. Uh, what was it like for you as a freshman? And then what was it like on the basketball court uh, leading up to the rest of your time at Xavier? The common theme of my life is people always doubting me. It's dumb trouble, man. Um, always doubted, like, when I was leaving for college, it was like, hey, you did a good job in high school, but you, you'll never play at Xavier, but we're still proud of you. And I'm looking at people like, I can't believe you just said that to my face. At least you're honest. And so when I went to Xavier that summer, I got a chance to meet the four other guys. Two of them were big men, and uh, the other two were guards. And one of the big men was the highest recruit. He was the one that got all the ink and the paper. Good guy, real good friends with him now, Eric Edwards. But when we were there, we were working the camps, basketball camps. And I can remember one time where we were signing autographs, and a kid comes up and goes, you know, you're Eric Edwards. He signed my thing. He goes, yeah, Sure. He goes, who's he? And I was getting ready to say something. And Eric, you know, answered for me. He said, oh, that's Brian. He'll probably get to play when I leave for the NBA my junior year. And I just looked at him kind of like, he's right. So we hadn't played against each other yet. Wait, wait, when you said he's right, did you think he's right or I'll show you? I'll show you. Yeah. (laughs) It was was, uh, the first night that we had pickup games. I had my roommate play tennis and – he had heard all the talking, so he was really nervous for me. Like, hey, how are you going to do? You know, Eric's supposed to be this, that, and I said he's a great player. Or they wouldn't have went after him now. But I'll, I'll be able to hold my own. Let me tell you something. I got down on that court. Every time I got it, boom, dunked it. Boom, boom, boom. By the time it was over, we were walking back to the dorms. And I can remember Steve Gentry, who was another recruit, going, damn. It's, hey. Man, where'd he come from? Where'd he come from? Tyrese Walker, I knew him because we went on our visit together. So he kind of knew my game. He was like, I told you, I told you he could play. And so I just always stayed humble. I didn't open my mouth. I just did what I had to do. And same thing when basketball came around, like conditioning and stuff. I worked my butt off. I worked my butt off in defensive drills, rebounding. Never got outworked. And then there was an opportunity for a freshman to play in the first uh exhibition game against the Polish team, one of the guys had gotten in trouble so he couldn't start. So coaches got us on the line and saying, I got to do something I don't want to do. I got to play a freshman. And um, someone stepped up and said, I'm ready. And they were like, get back on the line. You're starting, Brian. So now I got this opportunity. I'm starting. I called my mom because I don't even think they were going to come. I think they were just going to watch it on TV because I told them I may not get to play. And so I said, you guys got to come to the game. They came to the game. First play down, I tip it, run down, dude throws it out, boom, out of ended up with like 22 points and 20 rebounds. The crowd was just like, who in the hell is this? 
where the hell did he come from? But that worked to my benefit that they didn't know anything about me because now anything I showed them, that's how they were going to remember me. And I started every game. So, years. so I have this framework that I work with, which is that our mindset when we're practicing or strength and conditioning or watching film or working on footwork uh, should be humble. It should be, Hey, I'm going to learn. I'm going to grow. I, I want to get it perfect. But then when we step in between the lines to perform, there's actually some narcissism or confidence or swagger or uh, adaptability that we talk about. What was your mindset like when you got between the lines? So you talked about, you know, I was humble, but I also, when he said, you're not going to play until my junior year, you're like, all right, I'm going to show you. Uh, where did your confidence or swagger, how did you develop that or cultivate that once you got between the lines against that Polish team so that, to the point where you could get a 20 and 20 game? Um, I just think it was that I grew up doing things that most guys or things that these guys on the team, my other freshmen had never done. I, you know, I grew up doing farm work. Bailing hay, cutting tobacco, digging potatoes, picking beans, picking strawberries. I did all that. And, you know, it was just a day's work. You know, it's, that's what you do when you go out in the field with your uncles and cousins to make money in the summertime. Now, if I turn that into basketball, my biggest nemesis was my grades. That was the hardest work. Playing basketball was easy. I can just go out there and work all day, all night. But those books, that was the, thing that was going to take me down if anything did so that but mindset going into that game against the polish team you're a freshman you're not supposed to start you're getting this opportunity it's just i'm going to go do work and i'm just going to you know work my ass off or, or like what what is the what are you saying to yourself in those moments i wasn't i can tell you what i wasn't saying i wasn't saying i'm going to get 20 rebounds or 20 points what i was saying to myself is calm down i mean my heart was going i was scared to death um but it was that first dunk. When I got that first dunk, it was like, I can do this. You know, it was just, Brian, you can play at this level. And everything was offensive rebound, dunk. You know, I, I could shoot it a little bit, but I, you get me around that rim, I was trying to throw it down. And um, it's just incredible to look back to it. And I can feel those same juices bubbling up that bubbled up in that game. You know, where, you know, I, I get taken out of the game. I think I got like 10 points and six or seven rebounds already and everybody's like B you know and I'm just sitting down now I'm more embarrassed than anything like man you know I, I don't really like the attention but I, I understood you know how do you shift from being embarrassed there to once you step back between the lines like how do you lose the consciousness um to go back in there and say all right let's go back and, and get get more whatever you would say to yourself well, once I came back to the bench and people were congratulating me for starting the game off nice, then I, I, I got sort of a comfort level in that area. Um, hard to go back to my dorm after, you know, that game because it was like we walked through and a lot of the guys that I interacted with that weren't athletes, they were just regular students, were kind of waiting for me and be like, dude, man, you know. Good game, man. We didn't know. And I'm like, you know, thank you. But, you know, college, I made the most of it. I mean, you see, this is one of my favorite groups of all time, Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon, favorite album. And I think I had a lot more enjoyable time at college because I grew up around whites and listening to, you know, a little bit of Leonard Skinner, not much, a little bit, um, you know, Pink Floyd, 
Led Zeppelin, those types of things. So I could go and hang out with them and be totally comfortable where I, some of my teammates had a, a difficulty doing it because they were from inner city. And most of the time, <clears throat> any memories that they had with, you know, white folks wasn't very good. And I told myself, I can tell you a million stories of things that were said or done to me. And you'd be like, oh my God, that would never happen to me. It will if that's how you grow up. You don't know any better. I didn't know any better until I went to college. And then I started going home and seeing things. And everyone was really super nice to me. But, it, you know, you do something to a family member or uh, someone that you liked in town. Don't come up to me being nice to me. But then as soon as I walk away, he's the N-word, mm. you know. And, and you said something interesting. So you said books were what was hard for you. Um, yet you, you dropped in there that you made the dean's list your senior year. Um, so it sounds like you had a lot of help, but what started clicking for you? It sounds like things start, you started to figure out how to do school. Uh, what was that like for you process wise? And then what's it like for you making that Dean's list? Like take us into the emotional reaction that you have for making the Dean's list. Well, you know, I, like I said, I struggled <clears throat> my freshman year that I was going to fail out. And then as, as time went on, I learned how to study. You know what I mean? You got to kind of have a plan. And I didn't know that before. I just figured I could pick up a book the night before and go take the test. And why not? Why'd I get a D? Maybe because you didn't study, you know. And so I, I learned how to study and learned how to use my time, time management a lot better. And so to make the dean's list my senior year was just kind of like a probably my biggest accomplishment up to that point, other than going to the NBA, because this was like my life, you know, I'm when, when we lost in the NIT up in Northwestern, that was it for me. I thought, you know, I need to get a job. As a matter of fact, I was putting my resumes in at Procter & Gamble, General Electric, Grippo's Potato Chips, and uh, Jim Bean. And it wasn't until my coach said, there's three agents that want to talk to you about uh, possibly playing ball. Afterwards, I was like, playing ball where? He goes, NBA or overseas? I was like, you think I shouldn't? He goes, you don't have anything to lose. You might as well. Because you know you got a good job waiting for you. You want that. So I met with those three guys, and I don't know if you want me to go into it right now or. Yeah, sure. Okay. Uh, Mark Bartlestein, uh, Ron Grinker, who has passed since passed, and Bill Duffy were the three agents. Grinker, really good agent. He had Danny Manning, Tyrone Hill. Uh, Duffy he had a, a, a boatload of players. And then there was Mark Bartlestein, who. Um, he, he was working for a, a company called Just Sports, but he the deal was that he would take it over when it was time to take it over. Let me see. Get that off of there. There we go. Um, first two guys sat me down and said, Brian, which, what's your plan? I got I don't know. There you go. Well, there's three camps. There's Portsmouth, there's Phoenix, and there's Chicago. If you go to any one of those camps, I'm scared you're going to play yourself out of a second-round draft pick or overseas. So do not make the mistake in going to those. Mark Bartlestein came in like Jerry Maguire and was like, I've been watching film on you for three weeks straight. He goes, if you don't go to those camps, it'll be the biggest mistake of your life. And I go, really? He goes, the biggest mistake of your life. So I signed with him and he, he gets me out of the Portsmouth one straight into the uh, desert classic. And it was just like college. I'm going in, you know, I'm, some guys know who I was, but a lot of guys didn't really know who I was. And I was okay with that. But then uh, 
opening night, we were sitting there, and there was this point guard. I won't name his name. He was asking everybody, how many letters did you get under your door? Because the teams would put letters under your door to visit them at certain times. I go, I got one, man. I got New York. And he goes, <laughs> man, everybody gets to New York. And I was like, okay. I'll just wait till the next day. There's two parts of it. There's the skills part, and then there's the games. So we go in, they bring us in. I don't know if you've ever been to Phoenix Suns practice court. It's like a little box, man, and with little bleachers. All GMs and scouts, uh, people who are all into basketball, they're lining the gyms. First thing I had to do is a jump hook, a right-handed jump hook. I'm so nervous. I just like this, and it actually goes up against the top of the backboard. It comes down. Can you hear me? Yeah, I'm actually curious. So that's like the third time you've mentioned nerves. Um, would you do anything before you perform to try to quiet the nerves? Or did you just go full-blown and then, you know, go from there? I just would go with it. I mean, it was really no calming me down because I, I was already telling myself, what, why am I here? You know, why, why did I listen to Mark? I'm going to play myself out of, you know, some kind of post-college you know, career. And when I threw that basketball and it hit the top of that backboard, I started backing up like this. People were laughing. They're laughing. I go to make it to the door, and one of the players grabs me and says, B, just get back in line. Don't worry about it. And I know. I got to know what I think. He says, so what, man? Just get back in line. I can't even remember who it was. So that night, um, they put us on our teams, and I had Casey Jones from Boston Celtics. He was our coach. I had Khalid Reeves and Anthony Goldwire as my point guards. So I go up to him, and I go, hey. If I get the rebound, give it to you and beat everybody down the court. We give it back and go, you're going to get the rebound, beat everybody down. I said, I'm going to beat everybody down, and then I'm going to finish with a dunk or a layup. So you do that, I'll give it to you all night. You got to look up the numbers, man. I hope I'm not getting them wrong, but I'm pretty sure it was almost, I think it was like 20 points and 20-some-odd rebounds. It was just, I was just, after the first one, I just was going crazy running. And all these people that were laughing, I'm like, well, who the hell is this? You know, that's not the kid we saw throwing almost over the backboard. So after that game, I go back to my room. I got a letter from every team under there. So I had to visit all these people. After that, after that was over, my agent was like, all right, we, we got a ton of visits. Well, we need to visit them all because we need to get a, a buzz going about you. And I was like, all right. So I had something like 15 team visits, man. I was flying from – it was like I was in the league. I was going here, here. The, the so you're talking about workouts, right? Like you had to go workouts, to the city yeah. to work out. Right, right. So I go to Sacramento. I had a great workout. They're pick, they're, they have the eighth spot, and they're telling me, we want you. We just don't think you're going to be there. And so I'm like, okay, blowing smoke up my ass. Okay. Then, all right. Now now we're, we're lying. Because <laughs> you've been told – you know, don't go to those uh, pre-draft Portsmouth, Phoenix. Uh, by the way, Portsmouth's going on as we speak, and I've been to Portsmouth, and uh, it's a cool event, but you didn't miss much going to Portsmouth. Yeah. Um, and uh, But you, you're, you're now told, don't go to those events, so maybe you'll be a second-round pick, maybe play overseas. You go to this event, you then get workouts, and you start off in Sacramento, and they're basically saying, hey, we love you, but we're not sure you're going to last to eight. That, yeah, like like someone's going to choose me at seven or, or lower. And so I finish the workout. They know that I'm working out for the Lakers next. So we go to Morton's and Gary St. Jean, uh, 
says, they got a big old 48-ounce steak here. That's a big steak. Brian, I bet you couldn't eat that. I go, yeah, I could. How you like it? He orders me this big 48-ounce steak, and they all sit there and watch me eat it till I got the last bite down there. And they were go, man, he's impressive. We're going to need a lot of money for this one. He, he, he's impressive. And it was funny. Excuse me. It was funny, but I was like, had to leave there, go to the airport and catch a flight. And I think I got into L.A. like around 10, 1030 at night. And, of course, I go right to bed. I get a knock on my door at 6 a.m. Brian, open up. I open the door. It's Cooper, Michael Cooper. And I'm like, starstruck. Like, oh. And I realize, oh, they're coming in. I go, what are we doing? He goes, get your stuff. Let's go. Didn't anybody tell you I'd be here at 6? I go, nobody told me anything. He goes, well, get your stuff. I go, can, can I use the bathroom? No, we're going now. So we, I jump in the ride, go over to Loyola Marymount. There's a uh, Magic's there. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Jerry West. And then there's, uh, I'm with Michael Cooper. And then I think Cupcheck, Cupcheck or one, one of them other cats ended up coming. Ten minutes into the workout, Jerry West says, wait a minute, wait a minute. Oh, my God. What the hell is wrong with you? And I go, oh, man, I think I need to use the bathroom. He goes, bathroom my ass? This the worst workout ever. And this kid was like maybe a junior in college, big, tall, kind of stiff, but he was doing me. And was nothing I could do about it. He, he, was, he was doing me. And so he goes, all right, take him over the forum. I'll be back over the forum. I get to the forum, and it's like, it's like the uh, Godfather. And <laughs> Jerry West's the Godfather, and the other guys are the, 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 the henchmen. I'm sitting there, and I'm I'm looking down. My eyes are swollen with tears. I'm just, like, trying not to blink because there's going to be tears going, who the hell do you think you are? Do you see those banners out there? This is the Lakers, and you come with that kind of effort? I go, I know I don't want to make any excuses. He's like, well, don't, because well, I don't want to hear him. He goes, if I have anything to do, say about it, you won't play in this league. And he goes in. Jerry West goes in and calls, calls uh, who was it? The um, GM played for Portland Trailblazers. I'm sorry, I'm having a short-term memory loss here. No worries. Uh, but he, I can't even remember. He, he, just, he had just gotten hired by Sacramento. He played for uh, Portland. He was on the 70. Uh, 7017. Can't think of it. So he goes, Yeah, this is Jerry. How did uh, Brian do in his workout? Really? Are you serious? And he goes, No, he just had the worst workout in history here. If I have anything to say about it, he won't, be, he won't play in this league and hung up the phone and said, Get your shit and go. I was like, Walked out. I don't even know if they had Cooper or a driver. I think they had a driver taking me there. And so I'm sitting there thinking, I ruined it. I just ruined my my chance. I'm you know I'm balding in the back, just you know like damn. Why didn't you go to the bathroom? You know, and so draft night comes, and uh, we're we're sitting. My my agent Mark calls me and says, "Okay, I've got four tickets. One for you, your mom, your dad, and your sister to come to Indianapolis. I mean, it was in Indianapolis, we're in Cincinnati, so I didn't even really need the airline ticket." I go, "I'm not coming." He goes, "What?" What do you mean? You're going to be drafted in the first round? I go, Mark, I'm not going. I'm going to spend it with family. That way, if nothing happens, I'm just with family and I ain't got to worry about it. And he goes, Brian, please come. I go, Mark, I'm not coming. He goes, all right, fine. Where are you going to at least do it up? I go, yeah, we got this hall and big screen TV and everything. He says, okay, I'll call you from there when they start, when I think you're getting ready to go. So the six picks on, they're doing their thing. 
all of a sudden my phone rings. Everybody, like, there's like 300 people there. It just seemed like everybody heard that phone ring. I'm like, looking, I ran in the back. I go, yeah, and it's Travis Stanley from Sacramento Kings. He goes, how you doing? I go, good. And he goes, you ready to be a Sacramento King? I go, you lying? He goes, okay, are you around your family? I go, no. He goes, don't tell them. Let it be a surprise. I said, okay. So I go in there, and they go, what? What, baby? What happened? I go, we're going 15. I mean, everybody starts going, oh, my God. My cousins are jumping on me, kissing me. Everybody's just like high-fiving. And the number seven comes on. My mom's sitting there crying like, thank you, Jesus. My my grandma's like, he gets it from me. He gets it from me. And I'm just sitting there going, finally, you know, seven makes their pick. And I go, all right, everybody calm down, calm down, because you never know. He said there might be some kind of trade or something that goes on, and I might be involved with it. So everybody calms down. They're kind of eating, not really watching the TV. And then Sacramento Kings go on. It took like a minute. They come back. The 1994 NBA draft, the Sacramento Kings select Brian Grant. I swear, my mom went, she, just faint. she fainted. She fainted. And everybody was like, everybody was like, ah! I mean, it was just, I'm so glad I spent it with them to see their reactions. You know, it would have been different if I was there and they saw me on TV and I come back and I see them. But I was right there, man. And it was just, for me, it was like a year, five years ago, I was going to jail. You know, a couple years ago, I was just, getting ready to become a nine to five working at Procter & Gamble, hopefully, which is an awesome, great job. You just got drafted eighth. And eighth, you weren't even a second rounder or overseas player. And you got drafted eighth. It just blows my mind. And, you know, everybody asks me, like, well, you just must have been that good. I go, you know what? I was good, but I played against the guys who were a lot better than me. And for some reason, they didn't make it. It's not, you better have the skills, you better have the work ethic, but also you better have a little bit of room for the luck too. Mm-hmm. It takes a little bit of all three. But you, you go to Sacramento, you play there for a few years. Um, what's it like now going like, oh, you've got the shock of, you know, getting drafted. Now it's a business, right? Now it's, you got to put work in and what, what's driving you from that point of being drafted to now you're on the floor and, and competing with the Kings? It's a, kind of the same thing. It's like I, after I got drafted, you know, uh, uh, the next day, my best friend Tyrese Walker, who I played college with, we go out to Sacramento. They pick us up in this convertible long limo. And I mean, it was all over the top. It was crazy. And we go down to America Live where we're having our press conference. And I get there and I, I'm telling my buddy, I was like, I'm nervous. He goes, yeah, there's probably, it looks like about 30 media people there. And I'll go, yeah, I know. They must not have told the public about it. So to me, I thought it was just the, the right amount of people. I didn't know until next year when we drafted Corliss Williamson that there's supposed to be over a thousand people there <laughs> and everybody was boycotting it. You know, it was like, uh, Jeff, Jeff Petrie. That's who it was. Jeff Petrie was the GM. And so I go and they say, uh, What's it going to take to get you signed? I said, I'm just so happy I made it. I'll, I'll take a, a bag of barbecue chips and, <laughs> and, and a doc, Dr. Pepper. I'm sure Mark Bartlestein was happy with that answer. <laughs> yeah, he was. But, you know, but the, the good thing about that visit was I went out there. I moved back out there a week later. But while I was there with Tyrese, the guy tried to turn off the radio. And I was like, no, let it play. 
Who the hell is Grant? My God, we have the eighth pick and we go for Grant. We could have had Eddie Jones. We could have had Montross. Oh, my God, but we picked this bum. And I was all kinds of bums. They were calling for Jeff Petrie's job, and he hadn't even really started yet. And it was just the same thing over. You're filling my tank. Going, yeah, keep yeah. I'm a bum. Okay, I'm a bum. I'll prove you wrong. So that that we've we've now heard that multiple times throughout your life. Um, so you have success in Sacramento. You sign in Portland, and you're now on a Portland team that is loaded. And um, what? But but the the part where I was most curious about is you've got Arvidas Sabotis there. Um, who is a center and, you know, the, the stories about Sabonis that you always heard was if he had come over earlier to the NBA, he would have been one of the best centers of all time. Um, and, and your, your, your facial expressions are telling me something, but that, so yeah, tell me about Sabonis. And then what I was really curious about is when they bring in Rashid Wallace, this young guy, and they're now saying, Hey, Brian, we want you to come off the bench. Um, what that's like for you and how mentally you were able to, adapt or adjust to a different role so you can start with Sabonis if you want because you guys can't see this because this will just be audio but Brian's facial expressions when I started talking about Sabonis were, were pretty amazing but I would I, tell us about Sabonis but I'd also want to know like what, what's it like when you are now saying hey we, we want you to come off the bench uh I'll, I'll, I'll start with Sabonis Sabonis is one of those guys that he's got everybody convinced he doesn't know English which he absolutely does but he only talks to people that he likes you know, if you, if you don't like him, he's not going to talk to you. Coach, player, person, it doesn't matter. And if you catch, if he starts feeding you the ball, you better catch every one of them. Because I remember, good thing I caught maybe my first 12 passes from him and then dropped one and he tells you, hey, you dropped the game, you not get it. <laughs> and I, that was it. So I never dropped any more of his passes. But, you know, people say that they'd have loved to play against Sabonis back in the day. And I, I remember watching footage of him playing and he was awesome. But I think for the era that we were in and the job that he was doing, I don't know that the younger Sabonis would have fit into that because the younger Sabonis would have wanted to shoot it more and do all this other stuff because he can move. Now he's limited to what he can do. Now he's throwing passes from here, here, here. He knows he's not going to go in and dunk it that much. So he's shooting three-pointers and hitting things. So I, I, I'm really glad – that I can look back and watch video of the early Sabonis, but I really think the real treat was the Sabonis I got to play with because he had to adjust his game so much because his foot being so messed up that I think that was the better Sabonis. Super cool. I love that perspective. And, and on the opposite side of it, you've got Rashid Wallace who, you know, is six foot 11, uh, skilled, uh, probably was ahead of his time even because you look at the NBA now and you see a lot of guys yeah. that sort of play like, like she did. But I, I want to know more about your perspective as a, as a big and, you know, at some point, you know, what, what was it like when they said, Hey, we want you to come off the bench. We just got Rashid Wallace, I think from Washington. No, they already have Rashid when I got there. When I got there, he was in his first year. And the reason why, I really wanted to go to Portland was because of playing against him his rookie year. Okay. Which was my second year. No, when my second year is, I forget what year it was, but I so you signed, against, you signed with them knowing that they've got these two bigs already starting. So you signed. Well, they not only had, yeah, when I was getting ready to sign, when I signed, they said goodbye to the beloved Blazers, the ones that the city loves. So it was already pressure on me. Like we're getting Clyde's gone. Uh, Chris Dudley's gone. Jerome Kersey's going, 
Mark Bryant's going, Buck is going. I mean, so it was people looking at like, we, who is this kid? You know, we, we know him. He comes up here and, and fought hard against Duckworth and everybody. But man, I mean, we just got rid of all our blazer blazers. And so, uh, when I went up, I knew there was an opportunity for me to be able to play. And Mike Dunleavy, it, it, it put Sheed in a worse position than it did me because he ended up saying, I'm going to start you, Sheed, and Sabonis. And so Sheed had to move to the three. He was more comfortable at the four, but he turned out to be an excellent three at 6'11 because he could put it on the floor a little bit. He could dunk on you at any time. And then all of a sudden he developed this shot. And I think it, it was a little bit more frustrating for him than it was for me because he had already been there a year and now he's getting moved to the three. But he and I, it's just like anything. We, we were co-workers, but we were also friends. So I wanted to see the best for him. And he wanted to see the best for me. And I think it made it, it, it made, that made it easier for me. And I think he would tell you something similar if you asked him. And when you're in Portland, you've got now a stacked team loaded uh, with talent, uh, so much so that, you, you know, you have a chance to win it all. Uh, what's it like and – uh, especially those those years with the Lakers. And um, certainly for people outside of Portland, that's one of the big memories that we have is is the yeah. Lakers game. And and I won't tell you how old I was, but I was young and I remember watching. Don't even, don't, don't do it. Uh, <laughs> you see that gray hair? It's up in there, man. Like, I mean, from an outsider, you're like, is this rigged? And you're just watching, you're watching this, this stuff yeah. go down. Um, I had so much talent, dude. J.R. Ryder, Jimmy Jackson, uh, Greg Anthony, Sabonis, myself, uh, uh, Stacy Augman, Jermaine O'Neal's playing on the bench. I mean, it just, it was so much talent on there. I take my hat off to Mike Dunleavy because he, I mean, he knew how to coach, be a coach, but it, sometimes he had to put the coach in the sign and say, I'm a man. You're not going to talk to me like that. Mike, Mike would throw down with you in a quick, quick second if it, if it went to that. And Nobody how ever got, you guys, you guys were a super successful team. How were you guys able to manage the egos um, that come with, you know, talent? Uh, sometimes we didn't manage it. I mean, there were certain guys that would be, you know, late to practice every day. So Mike tried to tell us, we don't start practice till he gets there. That lasted like four days and everybody said, screw this. You'll be there yourself. Cause I'm not, you know, practice from eight to 10. I'm leaving at 10. You know, whether we get started at eight or not. So it, it was tough. And, but the thing about it was when we got on the court, it was just fun. You know, we, it, I went from Sacramento where it was work and not that I didn't work here, but it was so fun because it, there was no pressure on me to have to save the day. There was no pressure on she to have to save the day. You know, and then we brought in Damon. When Damon got here, Stoddard, you hear that Damon Stoddard, my mighty mouse at the top of his game comes to an RA stack team. My first year, I think we got knocked out in the second round, but it was the second season I was there when we went toe-to-toe with Utah. That's when I made a name for myself. I mean, everybody asked, do you hate him for elbowing you and I? I said, no, I look there. I look at the scar and it reminds me how, you know, I was able to have success past that because that put me on the map with people. Mm-hmm. You know, not, not that I want to get in a fight with Carl Malone, but, you know, I just stood, stood up to him. When you're playing against someone like Carl, who um, I don't know how you looked at him, but like growing up, he's the power forward. Like that's the you know, it's like you have Jordan, who's a shooting guard, and like that's what a shooting guard's supposed to look like. Look like, and then in that era, Carl Malone was a power 
forward. Um, so what's it like for you? Because in some ways I think about you in that sense of like a guy who like represented what a power forward was. So what's it like for you mentally when you're going against someone like Carl um, in a high stakes, high pressure situation from a mental standpoint? Well, I mean, first of all, he was sort of my idol, you know, I, like when I started really following guys, I liked his game because I liked that he was big and buff, but he's fast. He might have been one of the fastest big men I ever played against. And so, and I thought I was the fastest. So it was like track meet every game, track meet. Uh, mentally, I, the, the hardest part for me was realizing that because he's a Hall of Famer, because he is that good, because he's got great rep with the refs, I was going to get screwed at least two fouls each time we play. But just because, because he's Carl and I'm Brian. So how do you overcome that in your head and not go into like, because a lot of people would say, F this, like this is BS or I'm a victim. Like, how would you interpret that knowing that he might get some more calls over you? Well, I mean, I I just would accept the fact that, you know, he's put in his work. I'm still trying to put in my work. I'll get there someday, but I'm not there now. And the number one thing I got to do is keep my cool because it, especially the first couple of years I played against him, he knows, we ain't got to worry about Grant. I'm going to get him fouled out or thrown out the game. And he'd know what little cheap shot to do and things like that. It's the hardest, hardest shot I ever took was from John Stockton mm. on a cross, on a cross plate. I turned my head and come around. He got me in my ribs so bad. It was like a sharp pain. I thought he broke my rib. So I was there and I was pissed. And all of a sudden, uh, next play's up. I go back in the game. I see him coming. I just railroaded. Boom, hit him hard. He hit the ground hard. Everybody started rushing me, and he jumps up and goes, I'm still standing. <laughs> I go, yes, you are, because I just hit you with everything I could. You pop right back up. So, But anyway, the mental aspect of it was always something I had to – the only thing I could control was me not getting out of control. Yeah, and you mentioned, you mentioned calm down and like this sort of, hey, I need to play this intensity – but I also need to make sure that I'm not out of control to a point where I'm getting kicked out of the game or I'm fouling out. Uh, any any tools or techniques that you use to manage that or to develop that and get it into a sweet spot that worked for you? Uh, a little bit of meditation, actually. Really, uh, you know, if guys are eight, I, I was like crazy. You know, not crazy like in a bad way, but just crazy. And so. Usually when I came out of a game and I was pissed, I was going to kick the scorer's table. I don't know how many of those little things I kicked in, but a few I ended up having to pay for all of them too. But um, once I got to the bench, everybody knew once I quit doing this, they could say something to me. But if they said something when I was like this, it might be like, what what do you want? What do you want? Meditation? What what, what did meditation look like for you? When did that start? Uh, How often? Um, All that good stuff. Well, I saw it on, I think, uh, it was a episode of the A team. <laughs> and, uh, Mr. T, they're trying to calm him down. And so somebody said, you need to meditate. So that's where I took it from. Like, so I, I didn't know what I was doing, but I'd come back, I'd shut my eyes and I just, don't talk to me right now. I'm, I'm meditating on. It kind of helped too. I, I mean, without doing professional meditation, it was just to calm my mind, just to calm my mind. And you mentioned music. So I'm curious. Obviously, Bob Marley tattoo. You're wearing a Pink Floyd shirt. Um, yeah. Did you use music at all before games and rituals, routines? How did music impact you for performance? I did. I mean, if I, it all depends on what the assignment was. Like when I first, the first mistake that I made was playing Shaq 
very well and hold my ground against him. Because it was like after the coaches saw that, it was like, oh, we got to throw Brian at him every time now. And it was like, I think it was Portland, um, Sabonis was out and we were playing, I don't know if he was in Orlando then, or I think we might have been a Laker by then. But I had to play against him. And so I just tried to use, think, okay, how can I, how can I play against him? Because at any time he can drop step and put me in the hole. So what do I do? Okay, I can run him. He can't keep up with me. So if after he dunk it and take off, I'd always get a couple easy baskets that way. And then they'd have to switch up, take him out or put somebody in a position where I'd have to guard that person. But um, to go against him, now that I know I'm having to guard him every time we play, I would have to be in my locker. Guys, she was right next to me. And guys were going, Brian, can we ask you a question? But no, nah, he's getting ready for the game. Leave him alone. Because they knew I was over there going like this. They just didn't know what I was saying to myself. I was saying to myself, ah, he wants to screw my wife. Yeah, he called my grandmother a bitch. That motherfucker. That, I mean, <laughs> I would conjure up all this stuff and just get this. We'd be in the hallway getting ready to go. I'd just be just trying like this. I wouldn't talk to nobody, nothing, until tip. So by the time we got to to jump ball, I was this crazed dude. I was just rocking back and forth. And uh, Shaq comes up to me and says, good game. Fuck off. You know, I, I, what the hell's wrong with you? So he come up. The first two plays, I, I let him get me deep and then dunk on me. Like, I move out of the way. Then I started running him because I knew that after about two minutes of him chasing me and then trying to go down the post up, I knew when he got tired because now he would lean on me and arch his back. When he did that, I just went to work on his ribs. Man, I just boom, hitting him in the ribs, hitting him, hitting him in the ribs, hitting him, pulling the chair from out under him. He'd fall on his butt. Now he's getting frustrated and pissed too. But you know, I, I, I had more stamina than he did. It was it was it was a thing that you can't just go out there and just play Shaq. You gotta have a strategy. You no, know, let him get his first two dunks off. You get those back in fast break points. Now he's tired. Now work on his ribs, pull a chair out from under him face guarding, things that are going to frustrate him. But Brian, uh, I'm curious. So, so you would do, you would talk to yourself in a way and get yourself worked up into a part of like this intensity or rage or maybe anger. Uh, I want to go back to Bob Marley though, because Bob Marley, like to me, if I'm listening to Marley, it's no worries, (laughs) you know, don't worry about a thing, right? Everything's going to be all right. Um, right. So how does the dichotomy of Bob Marley and the intensity that you would use against someone like Shaq, how does that play? Uh, Bob Marley wasn't the type of music I would listen to to get hyped. But it was one song that really made me love Bob Marley. Because I, I thought, I'm embarrassed to say this, but until I went to Jamaica after my first year, I thought Bob Marley only had one album, and that was the Legend album. That's how crazy it was. I only thought I had that. And my wife and I were in uh, Ocho Rios in this little hole in the wall, and I'm kind of like in this linen suit thing. Everybody's coming from wherever, and I'm like, damn, we need to go. This guy comes up and taps me on the shoulder and goes, Grant, why are you so nervous? I go, I think I'm overdressing. He goes, shows me his badge. He goes, you're safe here, man. It's, it's all cops mostly. So I'm standing there, and all of a sudden I'm listening to this song, who is that? And he goes, brother, you don't know Bob Marley? I go, is it on this Legend album? And he goes, no, man, it's on this album. What you thinking? I'm like, so he's got more than a Legend album? And he goes, what? <laughs> God. 
that I'm sit down, I'm gonna treat you. He got me and my wife a, a drink, and he plays war. Now, for me, growing up in racism and growing up having to deal with that, and you know, being felt made to feel like I ain't shit just because I'm black. That was all bubbling up in this little spot until the philosophy which hold one race superior and another. Dude, I was sitting there listening to that, and I just. My wife, she's looking at me like, what's wrong? I'm like tearing up and just bringing all this stuff out of me. And I think we ended up leaving there at like 4 a.m. And from that point, I was just everything. Bob Marley. I buy every book, every little trinket, everything. I was just into it, into it. So it gave me a sense of self and purpose listening to him. I didn't need to get listen to him to get hype, but I listened to him. When I was thinking about everything that's going on in my town, things I liked, things I didn't like, things that were going on in Cincinnati or Sacramento or, or Portland. I wasn't at Portland yet, but that, that was more of a conscious awakening because I, I never really had that. So it's more of a life, like, hey, dealing with life, the challenges that exist in life, um, different from what I needed to get myself ready to perform on stage or in the arena. Right, exactly. And... Uh, I, I stuck with it, man. I, I didn't know how to dread my hair, so I just quit combing it. And uh, my mom came out, and I just was going on about Bob Marley, this and other. So she calls my pastor out in, uh, um, in Sacramento. I just started going to his church. She's telling him I'm worried about him. He's really talking about Rastafarianism. And uh, he's like, I just, I talked to him. So he brings me in his office, and I already know what he's trying to do. He's trying to convince me not to listen to Bob Marley. Or better yet, now you can listen to him, but you don't have to follow that religion. But his, his, his analogy was, you like the fish, don't you? I go, yeah. He goes, you know what? I really like this type of fish. I said, that's good. He goes, but I love this fish. But the only thing about it is it got a lot of bones. So I stick to the catfish nuggets where, you know, I can see that it's good. It's nourishing. It might have some little side effects, but it's nourishing. But... Religion is like eating fish. Like, for you, you, you're familiar with the catfish because you've had it all your life. Now there's this other fish that tastes great, but it's got bones. So, music's the same way. You eat the meat, but you got to spit out the bones. And for some reason that, I, I got it. Like, okay, I feel what you're saying. He goes, you know, truth is truth. And then he had me reading up on uh, Mokin and Rastafari. And he goes... Christ wouldn't have done that to his people. And, you know, so I was like, all right, I'm not saying that Ziggy and Damien and all them are wrong. Not at all, because, you know, we might all be right. And God just, you know, appears in different forms to everybody. But I understand what, for what I was looking for to get out of it, it wasn't lining up. It wasn't lining up. So I don't know if that made any sense to you. Yeah, so spiritually now, does Christianity line up for you, or how do you? Absolutely, Christianity's always always lined up for me. Um, my grandparents, if I was standing at my mom's parents' church, was three and a half hours. If I was standing at my dad's parents, it was almost four. So we had Methodists and Baptists, and they all talk crap about each other. Yeah. And I just watched that, and I thought, how can this be church when we're talking about the Methodists don't do this and the Baptists don't do that? We're there for three, four hours on those benches. <laughs> I'm just not getting it. And so when I went to Xavier, I went to my first Catholic Mass. I said, like, this is it, man. Just 50 <laughs> minutes, I'm out of here. <laughs> so 
ended up, you know, liking the Catholic faith just for the time that was spent. But later on, it, you know, I'm non-denominational. I think, you know, if we're talking about the book and what comes straight from the Bible, in my beliefs, that's what we go off of. It's when the Methodists take it and spin it this way and the Baptists spin it this way. No wonder we're confusing so many people about religion. And I'm not saying that my views are right over someone else's view. I'm not saying a Christian is better than a Muslim or a Muslim is better than a... I just watched some documentary, the Rashihis that they had in Oregon. Remember the, the people that uh, bought that town? They used to wear red cloths. Yeah. Um, re- yeah. Re- yeah. Re- re- yeah. So... Uh, so, so spirituality though has has played a role in your life, whether it is your upbringing, your time at Xavier, uh, the Bob Marley, and in that time, uh, you know, and sort it of has. where you're at now, spirituality has been been a it it, uh, it has awesome very important. So I want to just shift gears and and start closing the MBA book because there's another part of your life that I'm really fascinated with and we've been chatting for a while so I want to respect your time as well but uh the one thing I was curious about when you when you move on to the heat is your experience with Pat Riley who is a legend in his own right um and I was just curious what's it like playing for somebody like Pat and uh, what was that experience like for you You got to realize I was coming from a team that was loaded with talent and it was kind of like a free-for-all a lot, a lot of the times. It was like, you know, trying to reel in all the egos and be on the same page. We had the suits and the sweatsuits. That's what we called them. Scotty, Steve Smith, uh, Greg Anthony. Those guys were the suits. They're like the vets but on the team. Sweatsuits was me, Steve, <laughs> Damon, JR, uh, Jermaine O'Neal. So I could go in between the suits and the sweatsuits. So I was kind of like, they would be talking crap about them and say, what'd they say? Nah, they said this. Oh, okay. We all meet out and make him pay for dinner tonight. <laughs> so, it, it was fun, though. It was fun being on that team. Was there a lesson that you learned from Riley um, that you take with you today? Uh, you know what? Riley came, like I said, at a time where there was so much. You know, Mike Dunleavy was a good coach, but it seemed like it was being ran by this situation. That's the situation. When I went to visit Miami, I was on my way to Jamaica, and I'd already declared that I was leaving Portland because I'd heard that they were going to trade me for Sean Kemp. I heard that. And so rather than have them dictate where I'm going, I, I made the decision for myself. So we were, uh, remember Mark said, hey, Riley just wants you to stop in Miami just so he can talk to me. I go, man, I'm not going. I cannot play for that guy, man. It takes years off your career. He goes, Let's just hear what he's got to say. They just built a new arena. They don't have the money anyway. Just stop in. They're, they're going to put you at the Delano at that time. I didn't know what the hell the Delano was. <laughs> you know, until we got there, I was like, oh, okay. This ain't bad. <laughs> yeah, so my wife and I go there, and the uh, you know, arena's almost finished. And he took us on a personal tour, just the three of us. And he said, so cool and charismatic. That that drew me in immediately, like how like he just was on everything and takes his time and, you know, very complimentative to Gina about how she looks and the wives do this. We have the wives lounge here and then letting her know, but that's it. The rest of the time it's the guys and then the wives, you know, because we got a job here to do. And he's just so smooth. I mean, he could tell you that shit was candy. And he would say it in such a way that you believe shit was candy. <laughs> I mean, he was just, I looked up to him. I look up to him to this day. I mean, he's still my mentor, mentors me. When I have problems with the foundation or thing, he gives me advice. Uh, but to be there those few days 
and then go to Jamaica. Now I'm on the phone with my agent in Portland, trying to work something out with them. And then, you know, my agent just told me, listen, you know, Cleveland wants to give you a max contract. And if we want to go there, you need to go there now, because if you don't, and we re-sign with Portland, they're going to get you for a lot less. And I'm like, I can't go to Cleveland. I'm from Ohio, dude. You know how many people be banging on my door every day? Like, oh, come on, it's your cousin, it's your cousin, it's your uncle, uncle. I said, man, that, it's not worth it to me to go there. I'll, I'll take less. And he goes, I go, I'm actually thinking about what Riley was talking about. He goes, they've only got the 2.25 exception. You know, we're not going there. You're, you're going to get a max contract. I'm like, I know, but it's just something about him, though, man. It's something like if a general knows who his warrior is, the warrior knows who his general is. And I think we both felt that, like, when we were there. And finally, you know, my agent came back to me and said, yeah, they're not going to do anything beyond this. What do you want to do? And I said, tell them I'm going to Miami. Wow. He goes, he goes, well, we're going to joke about it, right? I go, no, I'm going to Miami. He goes, wait, wait, wait a minute. Let's put Gene on the floor. Say <laughs> so him and Gene, they're talking. Gene is going, I know. I don't know why. I mean, it's beautiful down here, but no, I want to go back to Portland. Mark, making that was go back to Portland. And Mark, would, I said, Mark, I made up my mind. So I call Riley and I tell Riley, I said, man, I'm, I'm coming to Miami. He goes, what? <laughs> I'm going to come to Miami for the 2.25. He goes, ah. I goes, okay. Um, really? He goes, all right. It's a good decision you're making. He goes, uh, what are you doing for the next month? Because you know y'all can't sign for a month. I go, I don't know. He goes, well, you know, maybe maybe you guys could go to send y'all over to Italy and y'all go on a, <laughs> on a, on a cruise. Like, uh, we can give you a discount. We can't give it to you because... The rules say we can't give it to you, but we can give you on a discount cruise. The top states. He wanted to send you to Antarctica and get you the. Yeah, yeah. he knew. He knew. He knew what was coming up. He knew what was coming up. He was like, "All right, he wants to go there now, but wait till they start grilling him. He's gonna get back to Portland. It's gonna be beautiful, and they're gonna throw some big money." I said, "Listen, coach, there's one thing I want you to know that I'm a man of my word." He goes, "Okay, okay." So, dude, it hits the papers. Brian Grant leaves this amount of money on the table for the 2.25. What's really going on? And is Brian Grant the stupidest player ever? I'm reading all this stuff. I'm getting pissed. We get to Miami, switch planes. People in Miami are like, yeah, man, it's going to Miami. Land in Portland. Let me tell you something, brother. We landed, and it took us almost an hour and a half to get to the baggage claim. And Portland's not a big airport. From the time I walked out there, it was like, oh, my God, people coming up, Brian, whoa, wait, you leaving me? Come on, come stay, man. You're so good to the community. It's one little old lady that, that I remember vividly. She just came up and just grabbed her hand and started crying on it. And I was like, I'm sorry, ma'am, are you okay? She's like, you have been a role model to my grandson. He would be locked up in jail if it wasn't for you. He just loves the way you work, and I don't know. He sees you play, and he goes out there and does his best and trying. Please come back to work. Please. I'm sitting there like, whoa, like, okay, I see what I can do. You know, we got we got to the house. I didn't I didn't even leave the house for like a week. I mean, it was like to, to go to the grocery store. It made me feel, you know, it, it kind of cheers me up now because this community, if you if you play the game and you can't find that where you're at. Then, then you kind of missed out on something. I never went out there and did things because I wanted to be patted on the back. I did them just because they were the right thing to do, and I was able to help people. 
but this city showed so much appreciation for it that I, I almost, I almost was like, I'll just take and stay here. But then I had to think for me, are you going to be able to be here and go through training camp knowing that you're just waiting for the moment where they say, send him to Cleveland, bring Sean in. No, I got to drive my own boat. And man, it was the toughest month. Toughest. So the day before I'm able to sign, Riley calls me and says, been having a tough time, huh? I go, yeah, it's been tough, but we're coming. He goes, you're still coming. I said, yeah, we'll be there. We'll get, he goes, all right, we're going to send you airline tickets for you to come down and sign. Next day, get a phone call from him. He goes, you talked to your agent yet? I go, no. He goes, give him a call. I think you'll like what we did and hung up on me. I was like, and then all of a sudden there's Mark's calling me. He goes, my God, Brian, what the, Riley just, orchestrated this trade that I just I couldn't there's no way it could work and you're getting 80 but you know I can't believe it I was like what I go Gina we're getting this she goes my god how'd it happen and Riley calls me back and goes did you like that and I go coach man I, I can't believe it he goes you're a rarity you don't find that in the league anymore you're a man of your word you went through 30 days of being scrutinized and called all kinds of different names and you're still coming. So I'm, I'm honored to do that for you. Holy was, cow. Dude. I, hey. Being around he, the NBA. He didn't have, he didn't, I, he didn't have to do that. I, I'm <laughs> trying to think of like, if I know of any stories like that in around the NBA, I don't, I, I'm not sure. That's like, it's, that's pretty unbelievable. Well, that plus you hear rumors about other guys who for whatever reason couldn't get their deal done with Riley and people saying that he's cutthroat and things like that. No one can talk that around me because mm-hmm. I, I don't know that person that you're talking about. I only know the person that, you know, had me come in there. He could have had me sign on the line for 2.25, waited a year and been like, ah, we don't need him. You know, we don't want him. But he went out and had Andy Ellisberg who was just a human computer come up with this scenario that worked and he went right on it. So it's incredible. So I could listen to your stories about the NBA all day, but I want to give enough space to find out about post NBA because that journey, I would imagine uh, if not as interesting is, is probably even more interesting, but the place I actually wanted to start was with, with darkness and um, you know, you, you retire from the NBA, you have a great career there. Um, but retirement for athletes, whether they're retiring, um, as college athletes and and then their identity is shaken. Now they're not playing sports and they're working at Procter and Gamble, um, is, is, is a tough place for them there. And then certainly when I've worked with pro athletes, uh, retiring from their sport, um, is, is dark. Um, but you're pretty open at least with, you know, depression, uh, you know, post-retirement, um, and also some other dark stuff, right? Divorce. Um, and so can you, can you just share what that was like to go through for you? Um, and I, I'll just leave it open-ended in that way. Um, you know, when I was retiring, uh, the last year and a half, two years of basketball was very painful. It was painful when I went to LA because I knew that, you know, my, my knee was arthritic bone on bone. And plus I had a couple other things going on. I had to have surgery for, and I was in this opportunity to play with one of the best 
players that I've played against, and that's Kobe, and really watch him show me why he is Kobe, because his work ethic is not surpassed by anybody. I mean, I work hard. I know what hard work is, but when we go to the weight room and we're doing weights and I'm over there pulling the rack down with like four plates left on it, and he's like, oh, you're pretty strong, man. How many of those you think you can do? I said, I can do enough. He goes, all right, okay, you go first. Yeah, my right. One, two, boom. He goes, okay, can I go? I said, yeah. Takes it, puts the whole stack on. <laughs> There's like five of them. I'm just looking at them. I'm going. <laughs> everybody's like, everybody's like, dang, he's strong. I'm like, good job. Walk to the next machine. Yeah, so I got to see that Kobe. I got to hang out with him a little bit. And I remember we were in a cab, sharing a cab. I don't know if we stopped at a 7-Eleven or what. I walked in, came out, there was cab was surrounded. I was like, all right, driver got us in there. And, we left. and I just remember thinking, wow, man, you know, everybody looks at you and thinks, oh, it's just this glamorous, glorious life, this and other. And don't get me wrong. There are a lot of great things about it. But that right there, when your privacy it's taken away. You think that's what you want, but I wouldn't want it on that level. Not on that level. Where I can't even go to the store. I can't even go to the bathroom and the thing, you know, without somebody watching my back because not none of those kids mean anything negative, but just to have them on you like that, you know, something that you never know. So I missed out on that one. And then my last year, it was like I got to play with Steve Nash, you know, Amari Stoudemire, um, you know, Pat Burke, who didn't play that much, that's my best, best friend. He's my best friend, hands down. Because we'd always go out because the other guys we knew had to play. We weren't playing. Big, strong, burly uh, dude, right? Yeah, Pat Burke. Yeah. Uh, he's not that burly. What? Not that burly. Wasn't he a big, though? He was yeah, like 6'10". Lefty? Six, Lefty, yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. You're burly, too, man. I'll give you it. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know... That was a painful year physically because of the knee. And then also because I started noticing I was becoming very uncoordinated. I was like, what the hell? I'm trying to jump off my left leg and can't really get up as high as I used to. And I just thought it was because I was getting old and, you know, I was in my 12th year. But the, the, the best thing about playing with that team is when guys get to my age and you know it's over and you're on a team with young guys and stuff. I've been on teams where those older guys come through and, Guys pick on them, mess with them, like not pick on them like like that. But most older guys aren't into talking crap with you and this and another and being okay with. It. You might say the wrong thing. Next thing you know, you got all listed waiting out by your car. Like what's up? And you're like, oh, oh, wait a minute, man. You know, I was just playing. Uh, that team gave me a gracious exit. That's it. I can't put any better. Steve Nash was the leader of the team, and he made me feel like I was the leader. You know, like. You know, BG, BG, always hung with them, Rajah Bell. They, they, when I say they gave me a, an awesome exit, it was just the respect that they gave me. You know, even if I wasn't playing that much or doing things, they'd ask me stuff or get invited to things. And they just gave me that respect. So on my way out, it was like, I appreciated that. I really did. Uh, but I couldn't explain what was going on with my body. It was, it was things going on. I was starting to worry about it. Thinking, damn, what I do hurt myself? What? 
And it wasn't until I came back to Portland in 2008 that I was diagnosed. So 2006, I didn't know what was going on. And then the doctor says, usually when you start showing uh, signs of symptoms of Parkinson's with the tremor, you've already had it like 15 years and just didn't know it. Mm. You know, the depletion of the dopamine producing cells are are de- being depleted, completely depleted. And I think I've done pretty good with it, having it uh, 12 years because I was an athlete, because of muscle memory and things like that. That's why at the Brian Ground Foundation, we bring awareness to the benefits that exercise and nutrition can play on maybe not eliminating your symptoms, but helping them become more manageable. Did you think, as you look back on your career, was there any other moments where you think it might have affected you? Uh, no, because so many things are always happening to your body when you're in the league and you're on the grind that you don't think of, it's just something else that's happening. Maybe my balance was a little off. Maybe, you know, uh, my eyesight, uh, maybe, you know, my intestines, you know, I was being constipated more than usual, whatever. I mean, there's so many things that people don't understand that Parkinson's patients go through that you don't even see. You know, like me, for instance, like I was eating something before I called you and I swallowed and started to talk and it almost went down there. You know, you got to really be careful and mindful when you're eating because those muscles get affected. And sometimes people choke to death because they just can't get it down. And what was it like for you initially when, when you find this out, you've been this physical, you know, person your whole life and, and now basketball is being taken away from you and, and, you know, Parkinson's is scary. Like, how did you handle that, uh, at the onset? Uh, I didn't always handle it well. I can tell you that I went through my bouts of depression and, and isolation and things and, uh, but when I open up to people and I allow people to come in and help, that's, you know, that's what makes things better because even if I wasn't a professional athlete and I was just someone who was diagnosed, I have a nine to five, I have to deal with it. It's going to be tough. But for me, my body's always been there. I, I was the type of person that thought if you were depressed, you were weak. I, I can honestly say that. And when I went through those nine months of depression, there's, it can be farther than the truth, man, farther from the truth. You know, someone who deals with depression, when you're depressed, it affects everything. A broken bone or a limb or something here, you, you can correct it, but depression, it sinks the whole ship. You mentioned people that have helped you along the way. I mean, it's very clear that you look at your teacher in high school, uh, your, the nun or the tutor in college, uh, your agent. Uh, Mark Borlstein, Pat Riley. I mean, you have hinted at the guy on the, you know, on the playground who said, we're not going to let you do this. Your mom, uh, slamming the window and inspiring you, whether she meant to or not. Uh, but these people that have impacted you. So as you've gone through some, some challenges, who, who's helped you, uh, get into what I'll call the lightness or away from some of the dark times? Uh, family and friends. Family and friends. Um, I think for my first marriage, it was it was very hard uh, on her because I gave nine months of depression were nine months of hell for her, and I was not a, a person that you want to be around. And I've actually got a book coming out, 
And I'm hoping that they allow me to title it Who Knew? Mm. Because I didn't. Uh, and it's not just about Parkinson's, it's about basketball, about everything. And, you know, it, it gives me an opportunity to thank people and also apologize to the women in my life. Um, because there have been some really good ones. And I just, either for lack of knowing, not knowing their age, whatever, wasn't what they wanted. Or I couldn't be what they wanted me to be because I was too self-centered mm. to into myself. And these people, since I've been diagnosed, have really been there. You know, even though I'm not married to Gina anymore, you know, she's there. She has my back, you know, same as I have for her and my kids. Um, yeah. It's Super. So why don't we end there? Uh, but before I let you go, I want to give you a microphone uh, or a megaphone, I should say, uh, a megaphone to just promote. Obviously, you mentioned the Brian Grant Foundation, um, but promote anything else if, if when the book will come out. Uh, so that people can be aware of that, social media handles, uh, whatever it is that you want to give a megaphone to. I just want to give you a platform to to do that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, if you want to help or be a part of uh, a fight against Parkinson's with the Brian Grant Foundation, you can go to BrianGrant.org. Uh, and it has our programs on there, which are in nutrition and, and exercise. We do wellness retreats. We do cooking classes. Uh, we're getting ready to start our trainers, meaning uh, not trainers who are specific to Parkinson's, but my MMA coach, Jason Pittman, takes our course and he becomes Parkinson's certified to teach MMA because now he knows what things that they do will benefit, benefit us and the things that they do that don't benefit us. So uh, really happy about that. Um, we do wellness retreats where we speak about things as far as uh, nutrition, all the way down to sexual activity, you wouldn't believe the impact that it can have on your sex life. And it mm -hmm. isn't always good. So, I mean, we just try to touch base on that. And then more importantly than that, to let the Parkinson's community know, we're not the only game in town. We're not the only ones that do it. Embrace the Davis Finney Foundation, Parkinson's Resources of Oregon, all these other places because we all have something that we're unique about, but we, we do a lot of the same things. Awesome. And I know you are on Twitter, so I'll give your Twitter handle, which is at BW Grant. Um, and we'll put those in the show notes as well. Um, and Brian, uh, I think I, I, I talked to you before we, we started recording. My grandfather passed of Parkinson's and, uh, how old, how old was he? I'm sorry. You know, he was, he was in his seventies, uh, at that point. Um, but he had this big personality. I always say, I don't know if you ever saw the movie Big Fish. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. With, um, guy from, uh, uh, yeah, I forget his name too, but yes. Ewan McGregor. Guy, Ewan McGregor. Um, so the old, the old guy in that movie is like my, my grandpa. So he would just tell stories. Some of them might have been true. Some of them might have been exaggerated. <laughs> um, and, uh, so my grandpa was a special guy and, uh, the one thing I remembered, even when he couldn't speak, even when he couldn't walk, uh, he would always give us a wink and, um, he would just give us a wink. So, uh, I, I'm fortunate that I do have memories of him walking and talking, but the wink, uh, was super powerful. So, um, you were someone when I saw you were on LinkedIn, I was really excited to chat with because I'm a lifelong basketball fan. 
Mm. Loved watching you play. I'm sure you hear that all the time. For some reason, I was always drawn to guys like you. Like my favorite player growing up, I talked about Georgetown earlier. Like it was when Allen Iverson was doing his thing, but my guy wasn't Iverson. It was always Jerome Williams. Like, yeah. uh, like I liked rugged, undersized bigs. Right. Um, so I always loved watching you play, but um, more importantly, it's super inspirational to see what you're doing. I watched the video of you climbing Mount St. Helens. Um, and I just think like that type of stuff is, is magic. So uh, thank you for sharing your story. You're an incredible storyteller. I could have sat here and listened for two and a half hours, three hours. Um, and I know my listeners, hopefully they enjoyed it as well. Uh, for those that are listening, you can follow me on Twitter at Brian Levinson. Uh, also Instagram, intentional underscore performers. And Brian, just thank you so much for being a shining light and, and sharing your story. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. And one last thing I want to say is, you know, the silver lining to this thing is that, yeah, you get to meet Michael J. Foxes and Ali's like that, but it's coming across people like yourselves who have a part in it through your grandfather that are doing, that inspire me to want to, you know, be able to run into people like yourselves and do these types of things because you give us an awesome platform to do it. Thanks, Brian. I appreciate it. No problem. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. If a general knows who his warrior is, the warrior knows who his general is. And I think we both felt that like when we were there. And finally, you know, my agent came back to me and said, yeah, they're not going to do anything beyond this. What do you want to do? And I said, tell them I'm going to Miami. Wow. He, goes, he goes, well, we're going to joke about it, right? I go, no, I'm going to Miami. He goes, wait, wait, wait a minute. Let's put Gene on the floor. So him and Gene are talking. Gene is going, I know. I don't know why. It's beautiful down here, but no, I want to go back to Portland. Mark, making that was go back to Portland. And Mark, I said, Mark, I made up my mind. So I call Riley and I tell Riley, I said, man, I'm, I'm coming to Miami. He goes, what? <laughs> I said, I'm going to come to Miami for the 2.25.